Extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. So after a long, arduous on call, and even though Tommy has COVID, we are recording this podcast about the recent mini budget that was really anything but mini. On today's Medics Money podcast, we will give a short summary of how it will affect doctors financially, and also some of the wider impacts that this major statement will have on the economy. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. Mate, so good to see you. I've been in COVID isolation. I'm fine, just seeing out my time. I'm recording via Zoom. But it's so important because the mini budget was, well, not so mini. Take it away, mate. By the way, great intro. Like, you could be hired as full-time introducer. Take over my role. Well, you know, maybe I should change careers again and, uh, you know, go into, a, you know, being an MC or so on. But yeah, no, thank you for letting me do the introduction. It's a great privilege. Although I fully appreciate it was only because you've got COVID and I'm trying to save your voice. I'm sure next week you'll be doing the introduction again. I've got so much that I want to say and I can't. So I'm just going to sit quietly. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, hopefully you'll be feeling better soon. And hopefully the fact we're recording this on Zoom won't make too much of a difference. So apologies in advance if it does. But I'm pretty sure we've, you know, during the actual COVID times, we were doing it on Zoom and it wasn't too bad. So, you know, anyway, I'll stop prattling on about that. And let's go on to the more important things, because as we've said, this so-called fiscal statement, because that's what they called it. They didn't call it a budget. They called it a fiscal statement. But in reality, it was a budget and it was a pretty major budget. And it's quite interesting just to start off with by speculating why it was that they called it a fiscal statement and didn't just say you know what this is a budget here we go the reason behind it apparently and i I think this is true but apparently it's because a budget would have required the so-called office budget responsibility to provide a detailed analysis and forecast of the impact of all the changes made by the government so by calling it a fiscal statement the obr the office of budget responsibility they were not required to analyze the changes or provide any costings for the new policies which i'm sure a lot of people who have written the news were very very costly because you know in reality this was a really consequential budget for taxpayers and for the wider economy with major changes to the tax system some expected, some very much not expected. And really, it would have been quite useful if the Office of Budget Responsibility had provided detailed analysis, forecasts of all the changes. But for whatever reason, and I'll let our listeners speculate as to why, the government didn't want them to do that. So, yeah, so they called it a fiscal statement. And what we're going to do today is, at least first off, we're going to discuss exactly what was announced and focus on what might be relevant for doctors, because there were definitely lots more things that were announced compared to what we're going to talk about. We're going to focus on what might be relevant for our listeners, for doctors and other healthcare professionals. And then afterwards, have a bit of a chat about the kind of wider impact that this budget is going to have or is likely to have. So. Let's jump straight into it. Okay, so the first big change relates to income tax, and perhaps that was the biggest and certainly the least expected change that was made. So the government made two major changes here that will affect our listeners. Firstly, the big announcement was the removal of the 45% additional rate of income tax. So now all higher rate taxpayers will be paying the 40% rate. The 45% rate will no longer exist. And the additional rate for savings and dividends, they're also going to be abolished as well. So from now on, certainly in England, 
Northern Ireland and Wales, the highest rate of tax is going to be 40%. At the same time, the planned cut to the basic rate of income tax to 19%, which had been previously announced, that's been brought forward to April 2023. So around 31 million people are going to save on average about £170 from that basic rate cut. And I've just alluded to this already, but just know that those tax cuts aren't going to apply to Scotland because the Scottish government set their own rate of income tax. And I believe today they've announced that they have no intention of emulating these tax cuts. In Scotland, the highest rate is going to be 46%, but in England, Wales, Northern Ireland, the top rate of income tax is going to be 40% from April 23, and the basic rate will be 19%. And the government's goal here is to make the UK a more attractive place to live and work. That's what they're going for here. It's part of their measures to improve the growth rate of the UK, which we're going to talk about in the second half of this podcast. But they're trying to make it more attractive for people to live here, to work here. They're trying to attract business into the UK. But of course, critics would argue that the changes mainly benefit the richest taxpayers. They're going to increase inequality at a time when the UK's national debt is high and rising. So if you think about a worker who currently gets £50,000, they're going to save £374 in income tax, which is you know not to be sniffed at. But a worker on £500,000 is going to be £17,500 better off. So there's going to be some big differences there. Mate, I want to jump in and get some questions. So, you know, for those who don't know, obviously Ed is an accountant and child tax advisor, nine years at PwC. You know, you've seen a lot of budgets. It was your job to analyze these budgets and make changes to your clients' tax arrangements in response to them. Like how unprecedented was this budget in your experience? Yeah, it's essentially the amount of tax changes that he made was it wasn't unprecedented, but it was it was nearly so. Okay, so he has cut so many rates of tax and made so many changes that it's one of the biggest tax cutting budgets ever. In fact, it's only second to a budget in 1972 when the then Tory government under Edward Heath decided that they were going to also massively cut taxes in a bid to get growth, which is very very much similar to what the government are going for at the moment. They also have cut lots of tax rates and postponed increases and abolished taxes, all in the name of getting growth. Sadly, in 1972, that ended up as a complete disaster. The government would reject that comparison because in those days, the government, as well as having control of fiscal policy, and in those days, they also made their monetary policy a lot looser, which is something that is unlikely to happen this time around. And we're going to talk about that a bit later. So they would reject the comparison, but certainly it's the second biggest tax cutting budget the UK's ever seen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good to get your expertise on that. And I mean, you also got a degree in economics. So I want to talk about, you know, they're saying that it's a budget for the rich. And I think, you know, given the scale of the tax savings that you just outlined in that last statement, comparing the two different incomes, are they going for trickle down economics? And if so, does it work? Because I've seen a few things. I mean, it's super interesting. About a day after the budget, Joe Biden tweeted that trickle-down economics doesn't work and never has. I'm not sure if that was for his home audience, because obviously he's got elections coming up, or if that was, you know, interfering in our foreign policy, but whatever. So, I mean, Joe Biden's comments, they almost only were for his home audience. They're coming up for elections this November. But also he, and just to say, he made that comment in between Liz Truss being elected and the budget, it's my understanding. So 
I don't think it was aimed at the budget, but it was it, potentially some people saw it as being aimed at the comments that she'd already made as part of her leadership election and subsequently. So, you know, a lot of these changes were widely trailed as she campaigned to become leader and prime minister. So it was well known a lot of what she was going to do, not everything, but a lot of what she was going to do. So a lot of people did see that as a barb against her, you know, a bit of a jab against her policies, but she would argue that she's not going for trickle down economics. And just to clarify what that actually is, for those who don't know, the idea being that if you make richer people richer, you increase the wealth in the economy and that will then trickle down to everyone. So even if you're targeting your tax cuts at wealthy people, which you could argue is technically unfair. Trickle down economics would argue that actually everyone benefits because that money will trickle down from the wealthiest people down to the not so wealthy people. Not something that has widely been seen to work. It was a big thing in the 80s under Thatcher and Reagan. It's not seen as something that's particularly good and obviously Biden, that's his view as well. Now what the government argue is that they're not going for trickle-down economics, they're going for growth. And they have a different, well, not that I've heard them use it this time around, but there's a classic phrase that people use. I have to try and make sure I get the right sort of nautical terms. But the idea is that a rising tide raises all ships, or raises all boats, whatever you want to call it. The idea being that if they can increase growth, then everyone is better off. You know, they're not so much, you know, trickle-down economics is adjusting the slice of the pie that different people get in the hope that then later on, other people benefit but what they're trying to do is increase the amount of pie that's going around and therefore increase everyone's income and they would then argue that would then feed into public services the question of course is are they actually going to be able to get the growth that they are hoping for okay that's really interesting and continuing the nautical themes i think it was warren buffett who said only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked and we might discover that uk plc has been swimming naked and has overborrowed, which is what warren buffett's referring to yeah and i think that's what a lot of investors currently think is the case absolutely but okay so they're not going for trickle-down economics, or so they say they're going for something completely different. And as part of that, you know, let's go on to some of the other changes they made, because again, it all feeds into this idea of making the UK more attractive and hopefully growing the economy. That's what they're going for. So the second big thing about this so-called budget, which is not a budget, of course, is that they made quite a few changes to NIC as well, to national insurance contributions. So under Boris and Rishi, I'm sure a lot of people here will know all the national insurance rates were increased by 1.25% from April just gone, the 6th of April 2022. And then the plan was that from April next year, they were going to split this out into a separate tax, a health and social care levy on people's payslips. And it was basically put into national insurance in this tax year purely for admin purposes. So as expected, however, the Chancellor has cut all the national insurance rates by 1.25%, and that's going to take place from November, basically putting them back to where they were before the start of this tax year. And they've also scrapped this health and social care levy. So from April next year, there won't be this 1.25% levy, and that's completely gone. Okay. Their argument being that national insurance increases punish those people who are working. They put up costs for businesses because businesses will have to pay employers national insurance and they also argue that it exacerbates the cost of living crisis because people are having to pay more national insurance at a time when all their bills are going up but of course these measures they were due to raise quite a lot of money for the public coffers I think they're estimated about 13 billion pounds which was all going to go to fund social care and in their terms correct the social care system problems that's all going to now be paid for from general taxation from general taxation receipts and also from borrowing as well they've also 
as part of this, because it's all linked, they've reduced the dividend taxation rate by 1.25% as well. So that means that there'll be lower tax rates on any dividends paid out as well. So that's going to benefit, I think they say about sort of 2.6 million taxpayers receive dividends. On average, they're going to save £345 in tax. Again, very nice for those people that are going to get that. Not everyone's going to get it. And of course, you know, that's another receipt that the government are no longer going to get. But again, they would argue that taxing dividends punishes entrepreneurs, people that invest in the economy and so on. So the third big change was that they've suspended any increase in corporation tax. There was a planned increase in corporation tax rates to 25% that was going to be coming in next April. And that's been cancelled, which means that the corporation tax rate in the UK is going to remain at 19% for the foreseeable future. They've also done a few other bits and pieces, such as maintain quite generous allowances for claiming tax relief on investments, although they have, it looks like they've ditched the so-called super deduction as of next April, which some of our listeners will remember I mentioned in the past. Pre went in fact, there are many people on here in fairness though, so I won't go into that in much more detail. But for those listeners who run a business for a company, such as a you know, private practice, you know, it's good news because that company is going to get to keep more of its profits. We get a lot, and you'll do agree with this time, I'm sure, we get a lot of questions about whether setting up a limited company is the best thing to do regarding taxation. And we recently did a podcast and a YouTube video on this in anticipation of the changes, which of course have now been scrapped. So we're gonna have to redo that podcast and YouTube video. The Chancellor's decision, okay, to scrap this increase in corporation tax will make it more beneficial to operate via a company compared to what it would have been had those rates been increased. But just remember everyone, the golden rule just remains that set up a company may or may not be the right thing to do. Everyone's circumstances are different and you definitely need to take advice if you feel that you want to set up a company to operate any kind of business. You know, a lot of calculations have been done on this, which show that actually, even with the tax advantages, that you may get, assuming you do get them, there may be other problems with running a company. So just bear that in mind, okay? So technically good news, just be careful. Yeah, we do have to re-record that YouTube, but it was incredibly popular. And in the comments section, there were some amazing questions, including a really good question, which Ed answered about the maximum rate was planned to be 25%, but there was a way to get a marginal rate of 26.5. So check out the comments of that section. And we are going to be doing more YouTube and we're supposed to be putting more podcast videos online because we can see that you like them. But I can promise you today's video ain't going online because I mean, you're looking good, mate, but I look like someone who's basically just crawled out of bed to record a podcast on a budget. Yeah, you don't look the best you've ever been. I'm not going to lie. Cheers, mate. Thanks. But you know, that's, yeah, that's part of the course of COVID and I'm sure you'll get better soon. Absolutely. And just to say, just about that marginal rate. So, you know, Again, our listeners will know that we bang on quite a lot about marginal rates, or at least I do, because it's one of my favourite topics to mention. And we have got some news about that a bit later on. Just to say that 26.5% marginal rate, for those of you that are interested or know what I'm talking about, because that corporation tax for us isn't going ahead, that will no longer exist. So if all you guys are asking me about that tax rate, that strange marginal rate, it's irrelevant now. It's, it would never exist unless, of course, a future government changes course and increases the rate again. I also like it because when the question came in, I thought, yeah, the maximum rate is 25%. How can it be 26.5%? And I didn't doubt it in any way, but I thought, I wonder if Ed's made a slight slip up, but nah, he hadn't. But the explanation's on YouTube if you want to see it. Okay, mm -hmm. mate, another thing, IR35, like 
if we get asked about limited companies a lot, we also get asked about IR35 a lot. And yeah, let's go for that. Yeah, definitely. And that's, uh, you know, it's a term that strikes fear and dread into the hearts of many. And the rules for IR35 have been getting tighter and tighter and tighter as time has gone on. Briefly, for those of you who don't know what IR35 is, it is really complicated. It's a term given to rules that prevent something called off payroll working. Okay, so in the late 1990s, a lot of individuals, what they were doing were quitting their jobs, setting up personal companies, and then providing services and billing their former employer via their brand new company. And by doing this, they made some major tax and national insurance savings. And the government have been trying ever since the year 2000 to prevent what is essentially an employment situation being passed off as something else and trying to tighten that rules. So, you know, IR35 is complicated and without going through its full effects, the effect of the government's change in this fiscal statement is to scrap some changes they made in 2017 and 2021 that had put the onus on businesses to determine whether or not they were hiring an employee. So from April 2023, the rules go back to what they were before 2017, whereby workers who provide their services via an intermediary like a company, they're once again going to be responsible for determining their own employment status and making sure that they pay the correct amount of tax and national insurance. So just imagine, you know, you've got a GP locum who provides services via a limited company. Let's suppose that's the thing. Originally, in the very old rules, the GP himself or herself would have to determine if they were actually an employee or not. From 2017, it would have been the GP surgery that was responsible for this. And then from April 2023, it's going back again to being the onus is going to be on the individual rather than the surgery to decide whether or not they're actually an employee or not. It's very complicated and I fully appreciate I'm not really doing it much justice here and hopefully that made a little bit of sense for those who are interested of course we're gonna to have to change a lot of our stuff on our website etc about r35 and we'll we'll do so in due course everything's changed we are gonna to have to change quite a lot of stuff on our website a lot of our po- you know after new podcasts and youtube videos so yeah a lot of work for us and then it's money i think but you know as i say, mustn't complain let's talk about property as our penultimate thing that's changed the, you know the government have basically made changes to uh, the uk's oldest and in my mind worst and unfairest tax stamp duty or to be more specific, stamp duty land tax, which is the stamp duty paid on purchasing property. Before the statement, no stamp duty land tax was payable on the first £125,000 of a property's price, but this has now been doubled to £250,000. First time buyers will also benefit because they will no longer pay stamp duty land tax on properties up to £425,000. And I think they can get stamp duty relief up to £625,000 as well. So good news for first-time buyers. The change came into effect straight away, but it's going to exempt nearly 50% of properties from having to pay stamp duty land tax. And, you know, I remember reading online that within about an hour of the announcement, you know, traffic on the website Rightmove increased by 10%. It's, you know, a big thing for a lot of people. And it took place straight away. So I've got a friend whose mum was buying a, a property. In fact, it's, she's already bought it. It's already going ahead, but they haven't completed yet. And that change is going to save her £2,500 overnight because of that change. Got to mention that this change only applies to properties purchased in England and Northern Ireland. As the devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales, they're responsible for their own equivalent stamp duty. Okay, so it won't affect Wales or Scotland, but it will affect those people buying houses in England and Northern Ireland. Finally, there were loads more things in the budget, you know, or say budget, you know, I'm going to call it budget every now and again. Technically, they said it's not a budget, but it really was. There are loads, loads of things in there, loads, loads of things, but a lot of them won't be relevant to our listeners, so I won't go into them. But I would just want to say one last thing about the 
quotation marks by Jet, is that it's actually worth noting that they have promised quite a lot more changes to come. So at Medics Money, we said before in this podcast, we're constantly talking about marginal rates and areas where an extra pound of income might have surprising tax consequences. You know, those include where you've got an income above 100,000 and you start to lose your personal allowance, the high income child benefit charge, and of course, you know, the dreaded annual allowance and lifetime allowance for pensions, because we all, you know, most of us will know that you can get into all sorts of horrible situations if you breach those thresholds. And if you want to know about what the issues are, then we have loads of information on that. You know, our podcast number 112, quite recent, goes into great detail about what the issue is there and how it affects you. But it's been announced in the press that the government intend to look at all these areas and make changes that people don't lose out by earning more income. And I think as you pointed out to me, it's almost as if Liz has been listening to our podcasts or reading our Twitter feeds, because, you know, as soon as we mention about marginal rates and what the problem is, you know, we hear in the papers that she's going to change it all. Honestly, it's more than a coincidence. So we've been working on our Twitter game, which hasn't always been that strong. So we've been putting out some threads, right? So last week or two weeks ago, we did one on marginal rates. And then a few days later, Liz talks about marginal rates, abolishing those that makes no sense. We did a long Twitter thread on it. And, you know, it's basically like she had read it and then acted upon it, maybe. I'm sure she's a you know, big listener to our podcast. I can't imagine why she wouldn't be. Oh, I mean, you know, it's not like she's got much else going on. Probably when she's commuting to work, like everybody else gets it on to find out the latest news. Yeah. So the thing that we haven't mentioned yet is pensions, right? And that's because basically in this fiscal statement, as you're correctly calling it, there really wasn't a great deal and it's jammed tomorrow they're promising to take a look at it in due course the health secretary did announce a few things recently regarding pensions and i was going to sort of talk about them but i'm not in tip-top form and it's probably a podcast in itself but essentially they're encouraging pensions recycling if you opt out so as you know there's the employee's pension contribution and the employer's contribution if you opt out and you don't pay the employee's contribution but essentially apparently at some trust you just miss out on the employer's contribution so recycling means you know the unused employer's pension contributions to an opted out member of the pension scheme would be paid to the member so it sounds fair and gps will know you know at our practice if you opt out of the scheme of course we give you back your employee contribution because it's your money i just chuckled when i saw in some rag the next day that this was touted as a pay rise for doctors a massive pay rise because the employer's pension contribution will be paid back to the individual opted out right it's not a pay rise your pension is part of your remuneration package. And if the ridiculous tax rules that Ed briefly mentioned disproportionately punish you for being in the scheme to such an extent that you have to leave the scheme and forego those benefits, the least that they can do is pay that money, which is rightfully yours, back to you instead. I'm running out of breath on this rant, so... <laughs> I'm going to save it for another day, but they're encouraging recycling. They didn't mandate it. There was a bit about, if you've listened to our podcast on CPI Disconnect, which is totally crazy. They've changed the revaluation date of the pension to attempt to fix the CPI disconnect. And they've slightly tweaked the rules about retirement to try to encourage people to not retire, basically. But we'll do a longer podcast about that another day because there's enough to get through. But I just thought I'd drop that pension info in there. Basically, at the moment, we're waiting. It's useful. I mean, as, as you say, it's such a complicated area. Pensions is such a difficult topic that we we'll definitely do a lot more on that for everyone you know they definitely 
have said multiple times that they are going to look at doctors' pensions. And I think there was an arrangement for judges already, which exempt them from various different pension rules that can cause tax charges. And I think they plan to bring those in for doctors, but it disappointed me they didn't mention that at all in this mega statement. And hopefully they'll come onto that at some point soon. There's also talk about increasing the lifetime allowance back to £1.8 million. That's what they've talked about, but that is just in the press and who knows what's true. So I guess watch this space. But it might be worth, you know, just to finish off, just to talk about, you know, the impact on the wider economy of the statement, because, it, you know, it's really worth thinking about how it impacts the economy and individuals in, in a wider sense. Because it's fair to say that, you know, this is very much a debt fueled budget with minimal details in the statement about how they're going to fund their changes or what rules they plan to follow when they address their public finances moving forward. You know, as we said, right at the very start, because it's not a budget, the Office of Budget Responsibility, they provide no forecast, no indication of how much it's going to cost or anything. They've completely ignored that side of things, gone straight into multiple announcements scrapping proposed tax increases, cutting, abolishing other taxes. And of course, don't forget, just before, sadly, the Queen passed away, they mentioned about capping energy prices, which is going to cause an eye-watering amount of borrowing by doing that. So you know, this mini budget, as it were, it's basically putting government borrowing as a share of GDP on course to hit nearly 100% in five years. You know, I think it's around 93%. So, you know, near as as it can be to 100% pretty much. We said before, the government's hope is that by radically reducing the tax burden, this is going to help grow the size of the economy and eventually this will all pay for itself. The government are currently aiming for a 2.5% growth rate. Currently, I think we're in recession, so you know the economy is not growing at all. In fact, it's shrinking, but aiming for a 2.5% growth rate. Unfortunately, there is a bit of a problem with credibility here you know investors aren't really convinced that spending vast sums of money while cutting income flowing in is going to result in higher growth especially as we said they've not costed their proposals or outlined any firm ways in which they will tackle increasing debt so the government's fiscal policy their tax policy their spending policy that's seen as pretty inflationary at a time when inflation is already high and getting worse it's currently 9.9 percent and forecast to go up even further than that so putting more money in people's pockets for them to spend, that's likely to put pressure on prices. Although there's a lot of evidence that the richer, wealthier taxpayers who are going to benefit the most, they're more likely to save rather than spend their newfound gains. But still, it is quite inflationary to pump more money into the economy through cutting taxes. And the governments have also really, I'm sure a lot of people have read in the press, they've basically spooked the markets quite a lot by sending the pound and UK bonds into without sounding too dramatic, basically into meltdown, with investors voting with their feet and dumping UK assets in the wake of the statement by selling off the pound, which in turn is sending government borrowing costs surging. So most of our listeners will have seen in the past that sterling has tanked against the dollar since the mini budget. It's reached a record low. It's never been as low as it has been. There are warnings today that they think the pound is going to fall below one euro. So that's another thing that they think is going to happen. And if a falling exchange rate, in turn, that makes imports more expensive everything that we import into the uk which is an awful lot really that is going to be more expensive as sterling falls which again is going to make inflation worse so you've got a government borrowing more money pumping more money into the economy through tax cuts sterling falling all these things are increasing pressure on inflation rates at a time when inflation is already pretty awful and then you think well how how do we reduce the inflation rate how do we stop the pound from tanking even further well the way to do that really is to increase 
interest rates and that is exactly what people expect the Bank of England are going to be doing. In fact, it was expected that they would announce an emergency interest rate increase on Monday to stop the pound sinking further. But while they announced that they wouldn't hesitate to increase interest rates, they basically hesitated to increase interest rates and have decided to defer the decision until November time. We're not hesitating, but we just need a bit of time to decide, basically. They're going to think about it until November, uh, apparently which is a little while away. Let's hope the pound doesn't sink too much further. But you know, currently interest rates have been increased to 2.25% recently. There is an expectation, and who knows, but there's an expectation that they're going to peak at between 5 and 6% next year. And higher interest rates, you know, they should. The hope is they'll reduce inflation, which of course is not a great thing, but they've got two fundamental downsides, which I'm sure, again, a lot of listeners will know. Firstly, they're going to increase the government's borrowing costs at a time when they're ramping up borrowing. So they're borrowing more and they're going to have to pay more to service that debt. There's also a risk that they put the UK's credit rate in a risk, which would be a further disaster, which would drive up debt costs further. Probably more importantly, though, if the Bank of England are going to have to increase interest rates to get inflation down even further, that's going to have a big impact on mortgage rates. And anyone on a variable tracker mortgage rate or who's coming to the end of a fixed mortgage rate, they're likely to see their monthly mortgage payments increase substantially. You know, some people may find that they can't meet affordability checks when they come to a mortgage. Some people find that they can't afford to pay their mortgage payments. You know, if, if the bank rate hits 4.5%, then a homeowner remortgaging next year, you know, they're likely to see their mortgage payments go up by more than 50%. It's you know, a big cost for a lot of people there. So I always feel that whenever I come on the, these podcasts, I just spend all my time talking about bad things and doom and gloom. I guess, you know, time will tell as to whether the government's magical growth plan will get them to that 2.5% trend growth rate, whether these tax cuts put more money into people's pockets, whether they will help us all over the cost of living crisis, or if this debt fueled fiscal splurge pushes up inflation and interest rates increases our mortgage payments and then people punish the government at the next election but it's hard to really say what's going to happen but it doesn't look great at the moment mate i love these like economics chat that was such a nice little explanation of it like maybe we should say a side podcast a medics money medical economics podcast and i reckon we'd have like at least three listeners like me you your mum i know my mum doesn't know what a podcast is maybe one of my sisters Okay, so that was great. Do you think that, like if I was the Bank of England governor right now, I'd be livid because Bank of England's job is to use interest rates to hopefully control inflation and prevent the devaluation of the currency so that we can still afford to import expensive things like oil and gas. And then as you just outlined, this looks like a potentially very inflationary budget. So do you think the Bank of England knew about this? And if you were the Bank of England governor right now, what would be your anger level? I'd imagine that they're incredibly irritated right now, especially as during the leadership election. I think even subsequently, there's been a lot of, you know, the government have been doing quite a lot of sniping and bashing at the Bank of England for failing to get inflation under control. So you're working with a government, you know, you've got two strands to your economic policy. You're in charge of the monetary policy side of things, the interest rate side of things, exchange rates and so on. You've got a government who are in charge of fiscal policy and I think have pretty much gone insane. And they're pushing up inflation at a time when they're complaining that the Bank of England aren't controlling inflation. Well, 
I don't think the government are going to be too happy if the Bank of England, as they're going to have to, ramp up interest rates and put a lot of people out of business, slash a lot of people struggle with their mortgage payments. It's not very joined up thinking, I think is a polite way of putting it. You always present that in such a balanced way, but I haven't often heard you use the word insane before, but it is looking a little bit, well, it's bold. It's a bold budget, isn't it? We talked about, I mentioned a quote I read in the paper over the weekend from a, a Tory or an ex-Tory minister who it was, remained anonymous. He said, you know, about the plans, about the government's mini budget or fiscal statement, he said, you know, everyone who isn't mad hates this. That was, that was the quote. There was a one, I won't repeat it because I don't offend anyone, but in the House of Commons, when the Chancellor announced he was abolishing the additional rate of, the additional higher rate of income tax, one ex-Tory minister loudly blasphemed when, uh, you know, I would repeat what he said, but I think there was a lot of shock and surprise. And I think there's a lot of Tories in the government, let alone people in opposition who are really surprised and not overly happy about all this you know you can argue it makes some sense if you're a firm believer in the idea that changing incentives cutting taxes are going to increase growth but the wider economics are a little bit challenging right now awesome uh, i hope that was useful you smashed it i didn't say much which is actually really nice i forgot we should have mentioned one thing last time you were on the podcast you were winging your way to vegas and we said that we might never see you again you're back so are we going to be privy to the profit and loss account on Vegas or? Well, one thing I will say is that I'm very glad that I went to Vegas before this mini budget completely trashed the pound against the dollar. You know, they always say the phrase, don't they, you know, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. I'll say that I was up and then down. So I'm pretty much equal to where I was before. It's a shame because I was hoping to, you know, earn millions. But hey. You could have also done like a massive foreign exchange hedge as well on the way back. And I was going to talk a bit about some mad things have been happening because of the exchange rate on investment portfolio. So... I obviously hold a broadly diversified global portfolio, which is largely immune to currency fluctuations. But as you might have remembered, my son, he's kind of gambler. He's five years old and he's been invested now since he was born. And when he came out, he just said that Trump is going to make America great again. And he only owns the S&P 500. So S&P 500 has been falling quite rapidly because of the foreign exchange situation and the fact that the value of the pound has been falling faster insanely he's still making money like that is a podcast in itself but not investment advice definitely don't do what my son does he's pretty renegade with his investments like i said but there's some crazy things happening with the devaluation of our currency it, it is slightly concerning although as i said my son he's pretty happy with it I had a detailed discussion with him about it the other day and then he just said does that mean i can buy more lego so i didn't really know yeah well best you know it's, it's every time it's a long-term thing Right now, Lego could be an okay commodity part of your portfolio, to be honest. Its value seems pretty stable to me. I'm pretty sure my sister, most of her net wealth is tied up in Thomas the Tank Engine toys for my nephew. Yeah, maybe Lego is the next thing. Yeah. Okay, mate. That was a great summary. I think that was okay, despite my issues, but really appreciate doing that in a bit of a rush and I look forward to catching everyone on the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. See you guys.